Hello, everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every week with 30 minutes of uh, insightful, hopefully, commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. I'm happy to be here in Rhett Palmer's studio, as I am every Wednesday, but uh, you can find these podcasts at my website, www.jimfeeney.com. And you can subscribe to the show at uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, uh, Buzzsprout, and lots of different spots. So I thought we'd take uh, a little break from our focus on rebuilding America uh, through more powerful state and local government and talk about U.S. foreign policy. Foreign policy is one of the few enumerated powers of our Constitution that goes straight to the federal government. Uh, We don't have the state of Wisconsin with its a foreign policy with China or Florida with one with Russia. We have a, an American foreign policy that represents all of our states. Uh, that is a, a federal government duty. After World War II, the United States emerged as the preeminent superpower on the planet and its military guaranteed free and open sea lanes and a relative peace on the planet uh, in exchange for making the U.S. dollar the global reserve currency. For the past 75 years, our world has lived in what many refer to as the Pax Americana, the the American peace, where global domestic product has increased by 20 times uh, over that 75 years. However, I feel as though this peace might be under threat as some countries are becoming more reluctant to cede uh, more of their sovereignty to global institutions. And China, as uh, we talked about in the last segment, is challenging the U.S. as the preeminent global superpower. So to kind of kind of impact this today, I am pleased to have uh, someone with the experience to help us sort all this out. Retired U.S. diplomat David Hunter, uh, who has served in South Korea as a diplomat in, uh, from 1992 to 1996. India from 96 to 99. Ukraine, 99 to 2000. Pakistan after that. And Spain. So he's got a wide berth of experience in the American uh, diplomatic corps. In 1983, David was a visiting fellow at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, and he published a book called Western Trade Pressure on the Soviet Union. David holds a master's degree in philosophy and international relations from the London School of Economics, where Mick Jagger is a graduate, I believe, (laughs) an alumni, and he has an MBA from the Crummer School, Rollins Rollins College, and a BA from Emory University. He speaks Russian, Spanish, Korean. And since his retirement, uh, he's been to India uh, a few times, and he, he's a keen student still of foreign policy. Welcome to the show, David. Yeah, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is terrific. As I said, I have a lot of different interests, and I think that making America the country it needs to be with the existing architecture that we have through local and, and state government is has been my focus, but it, it, you can't ignore, ignore what's going on in the world around us and in America's role historically in keeping the lid on things. So compared to domestic policy, which is very divisive in this country right now, foreign policy seems to be somewhat more bipartisan. And maybe I'm being generous here, but it looks like one of the few places where there's some consensus between the GOP and the Democrats and it seems to seems to be in policy areas uh, like the threat from China. The U.S. has just closed the U.S. Chinese consulate in Houston, as you know, on suspicion of industrial espionage and other things. 
And the Chinese government has re- retaliated, retaliated by closing the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. Uh, these are all things that have happened within the last week or so. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just declared China's territorial claims on the South China Sea to be illegal. And China has subsequently refused to accept the International Court of Justice and Law and the sea, uh, whatever their rulings are on that matter. They're, they're not going to abide by those. So, you know, we've got a lot of, of stressors here on the uh, in foreign policy, David. What are your thoughts about China as a threat to the U.S. and, and maybe what China foreign policy ought to look like? Yeah, well, the, thank you for the question. And, and uh, China is certainly a very important part of our equation for moving forward if we want to have a prosperous U.S. and a peaceful world. China is, is becoming a, a, a rival of comparable power in many regards to the U.S. They're the second largest economy in the world. Uh, we have enormous trade links with them. In fact, that's something that has been acting as a kind of a break on President Trump in his efforts to rein in some of the bad acting that China is doing elsewhere in the world, <clears throat> which complicates the calculation. The Chinese have, as you said, uh, they've been expanding their territorial claims, the South China Sea. They've been pushing on the border of India and Bhutan. They uh, have just uh, announced efforts recently to strengthen their alliance with Iran, including military cooperation with Iran and large multi-billion dollar investments in Iranian infrastructure. There is the constant conflict about China and its relationship with Taiwan, which is we see a independent territory or country but China sees it as part of its own claimed uh, region. And, of course, Hong Kong, which is what everybody's been seeing in the news, where the protesters have been uh, now declared to be uh, insurrectionists and being rounded up and arrested mm-hmm. uh, for even wanting to mention such a terrible thing as the Tiananmen Square massacre. That is now considered to be uh, a crime punishable by imprisonment. And in fact, it is a crime inside China itself. So you have a Chinese government that has been moving more and more towards extremism. So what do we do about uh, and, this, David? Uh, I mean, we, totalitarian. We, so we have a lot. You've identified a lot of moving parts here. And, you know, without going over the history of how we got here, we're presented with some facts on the ground that we're going to have to react to. America has to take, uh, you know, we have to have a foreign policy here that is... Uh, it's coherent. We've got an election coming up at about 90 days that where if the, the current administration is not reelected, we could have a very different foreign policy to China, which I don't know whether that's good or bad. But where, where do we go from here? How do we react to this regardless of, of political party? What's the best thing for America to do with regard to the threat that China poses? The disturbances that are coming up, you mentioned in the last segment about how Trump has sort of lifted the veil and has revealed the the malfeasance of the Chinese uh, in stealing our technology and in banding uh, in improper manner uh, and and its military threats. We're we're in a situation where if Biden became the president, he couldn't just drop that veil back down again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't think that he would. I I personally think that the evidence is now out. Uh, G was sort of hiding behind, as they said, hiding under the basket uh, in his first uh, year or two, as was done before him. 
and that was Deng's philosophy, keep China's strengths secret, don't reveal right. them. And what Xi has done is he said, look, I'm a big, tough guy, and here's my muscles, and here's my military, and we'll have a parade and show everybody that we're back in power. And in a way, uh, this is seen as a resurgent China coming back from a hundred years of humiliation. Yes, that's a good point. That's the concept the Chinese are telling themselves. There's something called the Wolf Diplomacy Program that is new to uh, China, and it's essentially not backing down. Most diplomats are, are looking for compromise. That's part of our trade. And the Chinese diplomats are saying, no, we're not going to back down. We're going to point out that you... Uh, Westerners and the United States have no right to be the world dominant power. You achieve this through imperialism, uh, and uh, we are now the world leader. And, and to be honest, their sailing point is working in some parts of the world. Many people are seeing China as being the more moderate rather than uh, the aggressor, and they're seeing them as being working in the international organizations like the UN and, and other things, and the U.S. being sort of an outlier. That's the risk that Trump has exposed us to, that we no longer have allies. Even NATO, Trump has criticized and said they're not paying enough, and, and some of the Europeans are no longer as strong an ally as they once were. So let me ask um, you this. Is it, and again, I, for, for folks that, are, that think in those terms that, oh, well, China's the, uh, the adult in the room, I would just point them to the million-plus Muslim Uyghurs that are being ethnically cleansed in, re-edu- in re-education camps, just like in the Stalinist era. And no one talks about that. I mean, all, all the folks that focus on human rights sort of seem to give the Chinese a pass on that. So as long as you're a Han Chinese and you're culturally aligned with them, then life could be good for you. But if you're not, it doesn't seem like a very tolerant message for those that think that the, they might want to be the Chinese partners. Yeah, as I said before, uh, you know, if you were a Han Chinese and you mentioned the Tiananmen Square, you'd probably be in a jail. That's right. Uh, there, there's a, China is imposing, uh, enormous, uh, what's called social credit ratings on whether you are behaving properly or not behaving properly. Yes, it's, a, uh, so it's, it's become a Orwellian it's police, a police state, state with, uh, with constant monitoring of their people. Yes. It, and it and that's so, their own people. Uh, now, some people would argue that that is the wave <laughs> of the future and that the reality is that a totalitarian dictatorship, if it's benevolent and offering benefits to its people, what do you need freedom for anyway? Yeah, that's true. Well, David, just hold that thought. We've got to take a quick break, and we'll be back shortly with uh, David Hunter. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and today we uh, we have a uh, guest, David Hunter, a uh, retired U.S. diplomat with tons of experience uh, working on UN, U.S. foreign policy and implementing that in places like India and South Korea and all over the world for many years. So in our first segment, we were talking about really what our foreign policy ought to look like given the new facts on the ground from China. And I, I want to just pivot real quickly, David, because China is very important. We could talk all day on that, but, I, you know, it's not the only thing that's happening in the world. I want, I want to address something that I think at least I'm observing 
this whole era of globalism uh, of the past 75 years that kind of maps back to that Pax Americana where the U.S. as the superpower has sort of guaranteed the sea lanes, uh, freedom of trade and so on. And we the idea that globalism where there's lots of free trade is good for everybody. And I believe that it is as long as everyone plays by the rules. But now we seem to be witnessing a fragmentation where Countries like the United States are pulling back uh, as a superpower from its engagement on the world stage. And, and the previous superpower, the Great Britain uh, of the 20th, the 18th and 20, uh, 19th and 20th century. So are we now, David, in a kind of a new nationalist era? And how do we sort of we plan for that, if that's the case? Um, well, there certainly is a, a challenge to the concept of globalization, and, and uh, there are people that think that it is a bad acting development because of the erosion of sovereignty. I mean, the United States is a sovereign nation. England is a sovereign nation. Uh, England left the U- European Union partly because it was fearful that its sovereignty was being eroded by being a member of the EU. <clears throat> the reality is, when you're a member of a club, you have to give up certain rights and, and things to get the privileges of the club. You, you may have to wear a jacket and tie sure. because that's the club rules. And in a sense, you've given up your sovereign right to go in in a T-shirt and sandals. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that when you're in a club, you do it because it has benefits and you choose that it's beneficial to you. In a sense, what's happened in Europe is the economies of that region have prospered because of there being a common tariff and custom and no border zones and and, uh, common weights and measurements and all of that harmonization. If you go to nationalization again, then all of those smaller states will have their own customs, unions, and borders and restrictions, and the economies that would benefit the people will disappear, the economies of scale, free market trading across borders and so forth. So, that's part of what people don't understand with globalization. Globalization has brought about economic prosperity. The United States is complaining about globalization uh, as, you know, that we're having to give up certain uh, privileges. But in reality, the U.S. has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of the global development. We, even though we've had factories that have moved offshore, sure, and some deindustrialization, the U.S. economy in general has prospered. We are the richest we've ever been, and we've had a continuing growth, and the power and influence of the U.S. in the world stage has always been high. That's thanks to globalization. We built these organizations like the uh, United Nations and the World Bank. They were, they were under the mandate. The IMF is headquartered in the United States. The World Bank is headquartered in the United States. Mm-hmm. All of this is U.S.-based. Yep. So... Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's what I would say. Definitely not. How would you, though, describe the benefits of this to the millions of middle-class Americans that have lost their jobs and where whole industries have gone away uh, and been offshored? And you're always going to have, to your point, yes, we're, we're, we've become richer, but we've also had a widening gap in inequality, wealth inequality. You've got a few people at the top getting super incredibly wealthy, the Jeff Bezos. I mean, it's just mind-staggering the wealth that he that he has personally and several others like him. So smart people will always figure out how to work globalism to their advantage. But for the average guy, 
that's just looking to feed his family or his or her family and raise their kids and have a, a steady job that, you know, when you've got a, this layer of really smart people figuring out how to outsource that job, well, how, what's your answer to them? Well, you know, in the early days, I, I actually know quite a bit about this. The, uh, in the early days, they had what was called uh, job training programs for uh, displaced industries. So, for example, uh, early on, the textile industries were the first to move offshore. Right. Why? Because you've got somebody in Vietnam or, or India or someplace Works that can for work tenth for of the price. $2 yeah. a day. Mm-hmm. And they're doing the same sewing that you do in Gadsden, Alabama. We get that. So the, the offshoring made sense. And what has happened is more and more uh, American workers had to move into the high-tech fields if they're going to stay in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they needed to become educated and be able to work complicated machinery and understand the more than, you know, nowadays to work on a car, you have to be almost a computer engineer because there's so much computers in cars. It's not just your old, you know, Chevy, uh, 67 Chevy. So the the goal is that if America wants to keep at the top of the pyramid, the American workers have to adapt and they have to educate themselves and realize they're in a competitive world. You can't just pull down the, the curtain or, or put up a wall and say, don't come in here. We want to do things our own way, you know, like we did in the 1950s. The, the world changes, and we no have doubt. to adapt to that world. So, so, now, I'm all for helping the Americans of the middle classes remain in the middle classes, and some of that involves, uh, you know, giving people uh, in the working class better opportunities for advancement. We're faced with a, a real problem, the, the the whole robotization, which is what I've, I've been to factories when I was a diplomat. I went to factories, American factories overseas, like automobile factories, and you would barely see a person in there because yeah, it's automation all being used. Is take, Robots are, are welding and shaping, and there's an assembly line. It's not the old assembly line from Detroit. Those were all shut down as being unprofitable. Right. That's a contributor, certainly, in addition to globalization, automation of business processes and manufacturing is, is something that needs to be dealt with. With regard to the EU, just let's focus on that as a proxy, as a metaphor for globalization. How would you respond to the, the countries like Germany and the Netherlands and Norway and Sweden, which are part of the EU and are typically considered wealthy countries that are pretty frugal uh, economically and internally, and that they, they're generating value and productivity and sort of paying the bills in, in the EU. And then you have countries like Italy and Greece and, to some, and Portugal and others that, that can't seem to get out of their own way, run structural deficits that are against the rules of the EU. They have very strict rules on, on how big your government deficits can be, and they just break those rules. I mean, so... If you're going to be part of the global club, as you say, and uh, you're going to have to give up the ability to wear a T-shirt and sandals, you're expecting others to play by those rules. What happens when they don't? Yeah, well, you know, there's. In, I followed the EU since its creation. It was originally called the uh, the European Coal and Steel Community. That's where it got started, and then it became the European Economic Community, the mm-hmm. EEC. Before it graduated, gradually, the economics was, was driving this unity as opposed to, you know, the fact that they wanted cultural interchange. But they realized that the economies would benefit by joining the club, and it, it, it evolved into the European Union, but it was originally a group of like eight or nine countries. And then, with this bureaucracy being set up in Brussels, they started to grow and add more countries into the EU. 
and to some extent, the Latin countries, as you mentioned, of, of Spain and Italy and so forth, they are not competitive with the uh, northern countries. Mm-hmm. And then when you got over to adding Eastern European countries, God forbid, you know, they were way, way off uh, track. You but they, they, but they pull like themselves that. up. I look at Poland and Poland is like kind of like a Germany now. They're net contributor, self-sustaining, and they've been in a much shorter period than Italy and, and Spain and, and Greece, for instance. So what is the, the tolerance for one group in a club that's kind of financing everything to be pulling along this other group in the club, which isn't pulling their weight? Well, I, th- I think it's similar to what the U.S. was doing with being the leader of the world, you know, in a monopolar world after the collapse of the Soviet Union and before China rose. We were the leader. We were paying a lot, but we were also able to influence a lot. So, you know, in this, in this case, Mrs. Merkel, the president of Angela Prime Merkel. Minister of, yep. of Germany, is able to have a big say in, in the outcomes. And she's respected and treated with with, you know, great uh, appreciation by these other countries. They've come and done bailouts to Greece, uh, and they've done economic assistance to Italy. And to to some extent, uh, there's resentment in the Northern League, as they call it, uh, over uh, having to, to help their yeah. poor Southern colleagues or their neighbors. But they, they see the benefit the net benefit. We're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there, David. Uh, definitely going to have you on again with so much to discuss, but that's our show we today for folks. If you want to continue the conversation, please subscribe to my website at www.jimfini.com and you can get my regular newsletter. In the meantime, remember, reunited we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other and all for all. Take care. I'm